Hi, everyone. Before we start, I want to share a message from our supporter on the podcast, Charles Sturt University. We talk a lot about climate and environmental science on this podcast and some of the amazing work women are doing in these fields. If you're looking to learn more about this and potentially thinking about pivoting your career in this direction to help in solving complex environmental challenges, then check out the Graduate Certificate Environmental Management at Charles Sturt University. It is a short course giving you specialist knowledge about conservation, natural resources or water resources. Start now and you could be upskilled in less than six months, gaining a certificate that will provide credit towards a master's. Check out more at their website, study.csu.edu.au forward slash graduate dash certificate. Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley. I'm the publisher of Women's Agenda and I'm with my Agenda Media co-founder and Women's Agenda editor-in-chief, Tyler Lambert. Hello, hello. On the agenda this week... Mean girls, anxious young women, do emojis make you look, sound, feel less professional? It is a wide range of topics we are discussing this week. Thank you for listening. Hi, Tala. Hey, Ange. How's it going? Good. Going well. I'm a little bit disappointed by the news from the past 24 hours. I mean, a little bit. I'm very disappointed, but I'm also very happy for her. And that would be that Ash Barty is officially retiring from tennis. I know. It was a bit of a shock, wasn't it? It was a shock. She's very young. She's still 25 years old. She's obviously achieved so much in the sport. Um, She's absolutely incredible, but I'm disappointed, but then at the same time, I just like the demonstration that she offers in terms of the idea of leaving on a high and not having this continued achievement attached to ego. And I just feel that she is the absolute opposite of the big over-the-top swinging egos that we see elsewhere across sport, but also elsewhere across politics as well. Totally. I mean, I was very shocked that she made that decision given her age and given, you know, where she is in the game at the moment. I think most people were quite shook by it. But at the same time, I really did like her reasoning and just saying, look, I've accomplished everything that I wanted to accomplish. I wanted to win Wimbledon. I wanted to win the Oz Open. I've now done both. I'm at the top of my game and I don't have anything left to to give. And what would be the point then in keeping at it and feeling miserable and starting to resent what you do, which is what you see so much of in professional sport, you know, people just languishing and and really not knowing how to cope. So I think good on her. And knowing Ash Barty, she's going to go and move on to so many different things. She'll probably move into advocacy in some space or mentoring. I imagine she'll still have quite a lot to do with tennis, but we'll just wait and see. Could join the golf pro tour. I know she could do anything. AFLW, <laughs> NRLW, wait more. Like imagine having that <laughs> many options to you. Like I just, even without all the things that she's won in tennis, just imagine having that many opportunities to be uh, so good, extremely good <laughs> at various sports. Like I would take a very like underground sport and be good at it (laughs) just one I'd be very happy with that yeah as someone who's profoundly terrible at sport and fitness I'm always like just mesmerized by women like Ash Barty or Elise Perry who can really just like top their game wherever they are so 
they are my heroes for that reason as well. Yes. Okay. So two our wins for this week. So we both agreed prior to this conversation that we couldn't really call that a win, but it is a win. It is a win in everything that she has offered Australia, everything that she's offered women, the entire population, everything that she's offered sport, everything that she's demonstrated in terms of how to be a different kind of leader and a different kind of role model to what we're sort of used to seeing as well. But leaving all that aside, what is your win this week? Well, my win still sits in sport and I think Ash Barty would be quite proud of this. But, well, there's a there's a new study that's come out from Victoria Uni which has looked into how flexible uniform policies and regulations can improve outcomes for girls and women across sports like netball, swimming and cricket. So 48% of the girls and women in the study said that being able to choose their uniforms would encourage their continued participation in sport and 41% said flexible uniform policies made them feel more confident. So this study in itself is not a win, but I do think that sporting codes more broadly are starting to understand that, you know, we need to come further in inequality within sport and also offer girls and women different choices around what they wear. And Sarah Stiles, who's the Director of the Office for Women in Sport and Recreation, said that dismantling barriers to participation in sport for women and girls is absolutely crucial at the moment. And as we can see with the rate of, you know, women that are are just kind of top of their game like Ash Barty, it's such a moment right now for women's sport. There's so much motivation and support behind it. I feel like studies like this are, are important to know what the barriers are and that still exist and how we can overcome them. And I think that, you know, more and more we are seeing sporting codes address that. Mm, I'm glad they're addressing it. It sort of feels like we went backwards on it in a way, not so much backwards, but it feels like uniforms got upgraded to sexier uniforms which just seems so <laughs> yeah. wrong in the context of girls and sport and it does make it such a barrier but I saw that happen you know during my high school netball career um we wore a white collared polo shirt with a skirt and you wore scungies over your underwear that may or may not be checked by these netball officials that was very strange at the time to have that check to make sure that it was regulation scungies. And then I remember just as I was sort of completing that career, um, as I was completing playing, you know, C grade netball through high school, it just suddenly changed to these really skin tight, it was sleeveless tops, really these just hugging kind of netball uniforms that they're great netball uniforms and look great across the pro level. They're always at the pro level, but then they kind of came into the amateur area. And I felt like that actually could be such a barrier for people because it makes it really hard to hide anything really. And it just makes it feel like you really are on display. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think for too long, women's bodies in sport have been overly sexualized, even from a very young age. And we need to get past it if we're going to get to a point where especially girls just feel comfortable to participate in sport because you do see that reluctance in schools as well um, and wanting to participate in PE and and whatnot. So, yeah, it's a really, it's a huge area. Um, So I'm encouraged by studies like this that kind of push on the need for change. Mm, Okay. What's your win? 
My win, I'll keep it pretty brief, but I came across this on Instagram and it was a speech by Kentucky Senator Karen Burke, who basically issued this passionate defence of abortion rights, basically sitting there telling her Senate colleagues that legislation put forward to ban abortion in the state is a medical sham that will endanger women's lives. Um, It came up through Instagram. We shared it across Instagram as well. I think I watched it about three or four times because just the way she delivers these words, it was so powerful, as well as the content of what she was saying, as well as the fact of who she was saying that. And who she was was the only woman on the podium at that time. She was the only physician amongst that group. And basically they were all there discussing these restrictive abortion laws, which are horrific and will endanger women's lives, as she says. And there she is, somebody with that experience. She talks about being a diagnostic radiologist. And so she gets up there and tells those colleagues that banning abortion doesn't actually stop the abortions from happening. It just makes the procedures more dangerous and that the bill was refusing to actually listen or respond to anyone in medicine or any kind of background in medicine. So basically the bill, this committee was debating this bill that recently passed the Kentucky Senate that would dramatically limit those abortion rights. It was going to ban the procedure after 15 weeks. And so she sat there and she explained her vote. She talked about that experience being a diagnostic radiologist and saying that that put her in a place to actually see a lot of fetuses at that point in that first trimester. And she makes the comment that Anyone that tries to sit there and say that at 15, 15 weeks that fetus has that functional heart of a four-chamber heart that can survive on its own, it's just absolutely fallacious. It's not true that there is no viability. So it was incredible. I encourage people just to go and have a listen to it, just to hear her content, but just also to hear how it's delivered with such passion and with such conviction based on her experience and the fact that she knows what she knows because she has the right kind of experience to be sharing those expertise. Yeah, it was a really powerful address. Mm. Yeah. So that is my win. Okay, so Tyler, on to another piece that you have been following really closely this week. I shouldn't say piece. It is a major issue occurring in the Federal Labor Party at the moment. And it is a pretty difficult one and a very sensitive topic following the very tragic and sudden death of Senator Kimberly Kitching in the last week from a heart attack. So she was aged 52. And since then, there have been a number of revelations that have come out across various parts of the media. Take us through that story, Tala, and your take on it as well. Yeah, I mean, look, it is just such a tragic set of circumstances and Kimberly Kitching was at the height of her career and what she was contributing to Parliament and it's devastating for her family and they, uh, the funeral moved ahead this week. But I have been really struck and, and just infuriated, I guess, by the opportunism from various news outlets in how they've talked about Kimberly Kitching's death and the circumstances that surround it. So essentially, you know, most people would be aware that there are allegations of bullying within the Senate and particularly around three senior senators in the Labor Party. So Katie Gallagher, Penny Wong, and Christina Keneally, and they have been accused of bullying Kimberly Kitching because of allegations that she allegedly raised with Richard Miles. Now, 
I think absolutely any kind of allegations of bullying should be investigated thoroughly. By all accounts, this particular accusation was looked at quite thoroughly at the time. And the main thing was that Penny Wong had made a very insensitive comment to Kimberly Kitching about her not understanding or feeling the level of empathy around climate change because she's not a mother. You know, apparently Penny Wong apologised quite quickly after that comment as well, and she says that that apology was accepted. Nonetheless, you know, if there's an investigation that needs to happen, it needs to happen, or an inquiry that needs to happen, that, that's fine. But what has happened since is this rhetoric around this mean girls culture in the Labor Party, and that term, mean girls, has been bandied about for the last fortnight since this kind of came to light. I find it so grating that we feel that it's okay to describe senior politicians in this way, in a way that we would never, ever describe men. You know, we have heard of various stouches between men in politics. Constantly, right? Yeah. Years, you know, Barnaby Joyce and and Scott Morrison only recently. Would we ever describe them as the mean boys club? I mean, I I would, but I mean. (laughs) I would describe them as probably much worse. Yeah, I would would find other words, but. uh, It's just, I find it so demeaning for women that have had these very, you know, senior established careers, their contribution to public life has been considerable to describe them in in that way is horrendous. And I guess the justification from these news outlets and from the LNP is that Kimberly Kitching perhaps used this term herself. It's not entirely certain whether she did. But even if she did, she probably used it in a personal capacity describing a situation in which, you know, you and I might use terms that we wouldn't dream of using in, you know, a public domain. Kimberly Kitching wouldn't dream of using this kind of term in a a public domain either. Mm. And now it's just been let to rip across mm. Australia. And, you know, the the comments that you see on social media about how women interact with each other and, and how, you know, flagrant this kind of culture of mean girls is. As someone who works on an all-female team, I'm so proud of working on that team and how collaborative and, you know, wonderful our team is in a way that I've never worked with men before, let me just say. I can't even describe how annoying I find it. And then to have someone like Mark Latham jump out earlier in the week as well, and I also wrote (laughs) a slightly sarcastic piece off the back of this, but he came out and said, oh, you know, Penny Wong isn't a nice person. I know from firsthand experience. I mean, are we really having Mark Latham commentate on issues like this and tell people what the pinnacle of niceness is? Because this is a man that has literally made his career out of bullying. Like he has bullied his way around every kind of like horrible news outlet for the last 10 years. And we're listening to him share his opinion on this. If we want to actually remember and honour Kimberly Kitching's legacy, you know, not make things so much more traumatic for her family who are already going through such a terrible time. 
I think this is such a dirty, dirty strategy. And again, I know I'm ranting on this one, but Scott Morrison came out as well, like jumped on the bandwagon to say that Anthony Albanese was gutless for not like calling an inquiry into it. Like again, the goal of Scott Morrison to to call someone else gutless when he's had his entire term in as leader has been marred by various allegations that he's literally done nothing about. Like he has turned a blind eye to every accusation and, and really, really serious, grave, awful allegations of rape and sexual abuse and bullying within his own government. And again, now he's jumping on this bandwagon and it's so political and it's so ugly and so low being Australian when you see mm. our politicians act like this. Yeah, when you see it go that way and to use the term girls at all but then to use that mean in front of it as if this is like a standard kind of situation that occurs across any workplace. And it's not really taking account of the fact that um, I know it's a little bit different in Labor Party where they do have much greater representation of women than obviously the Liberal Party, but it is still, you think about these women, how difficult it is to get into those positions in the first place, how difficult it is to get into politics, to get pre-selected, to end up in those positions and how then to make it out like there's some kind of competition amongst themselves and they're bullying and being mean to each other it's just because that is what that is sort of implying to me that there is this sort of jealousy and yeah this cat fighting that's what that says to me and I don't think it's necessarily that as well like you say maybe she did use that comment maybe she didn't we don't actually know the answer but there was that speculation that well there is those claims that she she had spoken to the media and they're about to come out with big stories about this as well but you know we don't know the full extent of that as well because of this situation and I find it hard to believe that she would want those sorts of words come out like that to be the, the legacy then as well. And a few weeks out from an election like I don't think so I'm not buying it I'm not discounting the fact that there may have been issues raised and there may have been things that needed to be sorted out. And maybe the Labor Party didn't do that in a timely manner. They should have probably actioned it in a better way prior to her death. It's tragic that maybe that wasn't the case. But at the same time, we cannot begin to kind of compare allegations like this Mm -hmm. with what has Mm -hmm. come out of the LNP. Which has never had an inquiry or if it has had an inquiry, we haven't seen the actual results of that inquiry. So, yeah. Yeah, that's really kind of left me dumbfounded this week and um, I think there are so many people that should be utterly ashamed of themselves across media and, and within the government at the moment. All right, so on to another story. This one is about young women's career choices and it does come from research from Dr Joe Gleason, and she is set to publish a paper by Monash University in the Centre for Youth Policy and Education Practice. It's really interesting research. It looks at pay gap. She's looked at where these figures have decreased and she's looked at career opportunities for young women, particularly the ambitions that secondary students in Victoria have. So they've done a survey of two and a half thousand school students from five, they call them diverse schools, so across five diverse schools. And they were asked about the kinds of career advice they had received at school. And what they found was that women's career choices continue to be concentrated within a handful of traditional professional career pathways. I thought this was really interesting. And they say that she writes that this actually reflects OECD data as well, but they found that 65% of young women nominated a career within 10 typical occupations. I can't even think what those 
occupation should be to me I don't I don't know maybe it's because of the work that we do now which we never could have imagined doing when we're in high school but it's hard to think about there just being 10 clear occupations out there but anyway we're still at a point where you know more than around two-thirds of young women are kind of concentrating around those 10 popular occupations and nine out of 10 of those are considered professional requiring tertiary study so they're things like doctors teachers vets and Joe also writes that you know aiming for those types of careers has it's persisting despite the emergence of all these new occupations like kind of what I'm touching on right now including occupations in cybersecurity and in artificial intelligence in social media in digital media the kind of work that we do and more so in entrepreneurship where we actually see so many women not necessarily going directly after school but ultimately ending up there and I can appreciate it's difficult to go and study entrepreneurship like you can study some of these other degrees but some of the interesting data around what they found was this pressure on expectations and expectations of their parents. So 50% of those young women saying that their choices are based on others' expectations, on expectations of their parents or carers, just over half again worried that others would not approve of those choices and a little more than half saying that they were making those choices to basically please others. And one of the really interesting findings then was that 39% of these female respondents were concerned about ever achieving a, quote, real career. I need to get the definition of a real career. But I wonder. I mean, I, I can see it's across those traditional professions at those 10 and they're kind of nine out of 10 of those are in professional environments. But it's kind of clear that we're sort of missing all these career opportunities that don't necessarily get the most respect that they should, that don't get the pay that they should, and you know exactly where I'm going, um, across, um, particularly across caring professions, if these young women are seeing those as the real career choices, because we certainly know that they are the real job needs that will be there in the future. Yeah. I mean, this study I found really striking because Clearly, we are seeing kind of record rates of women graduating university. Women have never been more educated than they are right now. But to see some of the stats behind it and the apprehension that obviously exists among young women in entering the workforce, I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done, clearly. And one thing that I found really striking was that 57.9% of the respondents felt they had fewer career choices because of who they are and where they come from. I mean, clearly we do know that people that come from wealthier backgrounds, high socioeconomic backgrounds, have had very established education, are going to have greater career prospects. But that stat, 57.9%, just struck me as so large. And what kind of barrier are they facing? What are they internalising? What needs to be done there from an employer perspective, from a policy perspective, to make sure that we can get to a more egalitarian state? Like it it seems to me that that's a huge, huge statistic of probably very competent, talented women Mm. uh, feeling like they're just never going to get ahead. Um Joel also talks about the idea of the linear career and she kind of speculates that that might be pushing people to feel anxious about career choices and anxious about pleasing others as well. The idea to choose these set key professions that um, do on from the outset seem to have a very linear path. 
I remember having just left school, being at university, even a few years in the workforce and that real sense of anxiety of a linear, of not having a linear career and looking to friends and peers who appeared to have that linear career and feeling a lot of envy about it because it just seemed to be, it's like, okay, that's the path, it's mapped. You do your time here, you get that next promotion, you do your time there, you get that next, and then you end up in this kind of leadership world because you've put in the years and you've gained the experience now all that was well and truly before I had thought about having kids and then well and truly before again then I started to have kids as well when very quickly the idea of the linear career just didn't make any sense at all and you see that across so many women in professional services how where they get careers become zigzag but then where they're penalized for that at the same time I think that's a really important point because and I think that's something that needs to be addressed at the school level because certainly when I was going through school I got trapped in that thinking of you know really feeling like I needed to know what degree to do to to kind of set myself on a path and when when I finished that degree and that pathway wasn't happening for me I found it just so confronting and I didn't know how to to kind of steer myself into anything else and I I think that one of the greatest lies that we're told is that you do need to do things in this very kind of set formula. Like if anything, you know, tap on doors that are are different to what you've been told to do. For me, you know, I really wanted to pursue a career in journalism, but every door that I I knocked on after graduating was, it was a no-go zone and I just couldn't actually get through. And so I, I moved into media sales within a big B2B publishing house and and then kind of just started to like make connections and, and talk to people and, and make different moves that way. And I that would be my greatest advice to anyone really, like especially anyone that's studying at the moment. Just don't get trapped in that thinking of this is the the only way to to get to where I want to be. Because I I think for the most part in lots of different industries, clearly not in in some, like, you know, medicine, you you know, you need to get a medical degree to become a doctor. But, you know, in lots of other professions, there are so many other avenues for you to get into that that profession. And, yeah, I just, I think it is such a falsehood that we're told that really needs to be kind of, yeah, just, I guess, rejigged. Set within. out and planned and, yeah. yeah. I think one of the greatest lies is that you have to put in this endless time to be great and I think sure that works for tennis and it works for learning to play the piano and um, it works for being a great surgeon as well I'm sure but it certainly doesn't have to apply across other areas I think the time that you put in will certainly make you better at your art but it won't necessarily separate you from everyone else because you will have innate talents yourself and you will have unique experience yourself already that you can bring to any of those professions or roles or whatever your zigzagged career might be. Yeah, totally. So still on the topic of careers, <laughs> this is a little bit of one from the sidelines that we thought we'd bring in because we have published a piece a day that is all about emojis and this is actually something that I personally have wanted myself is if using emojis is actually killing your chance of being taken seriously. So there has been a study done at Tel Aviv University's Collar School of Management and they claim that emojis are actually impacting your ability to be taken seriously in the workplace. 
What if you take out the emoji? Because I often do a smiley face, but then I take, I, I backtrack so that it's not an emoji. It's just a smiley face. Yeah. So sometimes I take out the smiley face because I feel like it makes me seem old because that is obviously the go-to emoji that you instantly go to. And then I'll look for a more interesting emoji that is some kind of variation of the smiley face. And I'll spend like three minutes trying to find the perfect emoji. I'm like, emoji is meant to make the uh, communication that I'm conveying easier and simply and simpler to get across and clearly the art form of emojis maybe it will be an actual course at university soon you know like it probably is like yeah I'm sure there are PhDs on it this is probably a PhD that whoever did this study so yeah no it's an interesting study because it's something that I often wonder about because I I think you can come across as quite like you know severe times in an email and I think um, using emojis can alleviate that a little bit but at the same time I tend to do it only with people that I am very familiar with perhaps it's not the right strategy maybe I'll go back to the drawing board now and think of something else well and there's also the memes as well so this wasn't about memes this was more purely about emojis but um I have when I've been involved in comms um uh, with different clients and I've kind of seen the use of memes and I've sort of maybe been a little bit alarmed at the use of memes in other workplaces you know when you get invited to to different kind of comms areas if you're working on a project with, with a different client and I'm um, just how did it become <laughs> because it always gets to the point where you feel you have to contribute some kind of meme to whatever kind of celebration thing that is being shared and I'm kind of proud that we haven't really introduced that into our team <laughs> we just kind of stick to a little clapping thing or whatever but we haven't gone down the path of like trying to communicate all these um, congratulatory terms or messages or whatever it is through a hundred different um, amusing memes, which is only amusing. Uh, I I'm love really it. okay with the fact that I'm just like like way uncool for that, you know? <laughs> like I'm just like past my prime. Like I get it. It's fine. <laughs> I'm all good. Like I'm, I'm sticking with I'm the basic cool. smiley face, okay? <laughs> if you're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise it's nothing. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, no, I don't yeah, I'll use them in familiar settings a little bit amongst ourselves. Not so much in email. It's fine. It's your own. Do, do your thing. If that's how you like to communicate, bring your whole self into those communications. I think it's great. It's like a few, you know how there was that push to kind of on that movement of getting um, women to stop saying sorry in emails. You know how people write, oh, I'm sorry, sorry to bother you, blah, blah, blah. And I remember reading that. I was like, yeah, you know what? I say sorry in emails. I'm not going to try and change. Who gives a shit if I say sorry? Like, that's just who I am. I like to apologize for interrupting people. And sure, I could get really hard on myself and make it out like I'm a really inadequate person because I like to apologize and add a few extra niceties in my communications. But like, you know, you think about that and you do, you like, I, I did the experiment of running that search term across my inbox and I found that, yeah, I do use it a lot, but who cares if it's who you are, do it. No, totally. And when I read that, I, my first instinct was just like, that doesn't mean that women should stop saying sorry. It should just, it just means that men should say sorry more. Yeah, like, exactly. That is the issue is that yeah. men are lacking empathy when they communicate. We don't need to become like that. Like yes. saying sorry is, exactly. a, is a human thing. Yeah, so sorry, but you can keep saying sorry as much as you want and send those mm -hmm. emojis and memes, whatever. 
conveys your message. I'm sorry we've run over time on this podcast. <laughs> All right. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Thank you for listening to the Women's Agenda podcast. A reminder that you can access all these stories and more on our website where you can also subscribe to our daily newsletter, womensagenda.com.au forward slash subscribe. 